Well, the first, first thing is the drummer is out of control in a good way. And I just, you know, I don't take that for granted. Um, well, the Bible says that the Lord put the rainbow in the sky to give us a token of his promise never to destroy the earth by water again. But I was beginning to worry a little bit. I thought I might have to start making an ark. But the last two days, I've calmed down, I've backed off. Uh, but at my age, you know, I do think about what older people think about. I think about my own aches and pains and the weather, and I talk about both of them, and I'm embarrassed about it, but it, it is a fact. Well, it's good to be back. I've missed you, but I heard you all did just fine without me, and it hurt me just a little, but I got over it and went on. But let's turn to Luke's Gospel, chapter 2, this morning. I want to um, uh, read a passage here. Um, relating to the boy Jesus, the most neglected dimension of the life of Jesus is undoubtedly uh, his boyhood. But the Bible does tell us something about it. <clears throat> gives us a little window into it. In Luke's Gospel, chapter 39. <coughs> I'm sorry, yeah, Luke's Gospel, chapter 2, verse 39. It says... Speaking of Mary and Joseph, it says, And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him, upon Jesus. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover, <clears throat> And when he was 12 years old, when Jesus was 12, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. The parent, his parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Speaking of, speaking for Joseph and herself. Why have you treated us so? Behold, this is so important. These next two words are so important. Your father and I have been searching for you in distress. And Jesus said to them, he's 12. Why were you looking for me? Even the... Communication and miscommunication, misunderstanding prevailed in the home of the Son of God. Not just our homes, but His. Why were you looking for me? Do you not know that I must be in my Father's house. And they did not understand the saying that He spoke to them. And He went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And His mother, says my version says treasured up, I like the King James better here, pondered pondered all these things in her heart. This is the word of the Lord for us today. Thanks be to God. <clears throat> One question that the content of Holy Scripture, uh, naturally I think, but certainly uh, legitimately, stirs up in us, is the question, what does it take to be saved? And an array of other related questions. What does it take uh, for us to have a life that is 
a good life, an abundant life. Jesus said, I came to give you life and to give it to you abundantly. Well, what does it take for that to happen? Well, the Scriptures do not hide that. And that's where we find the answer. Um, I would think that there would be many, certainly I would have been one of these persons, but many Christians who have spent significant time in the church, significant time in their Bibles, uh, have witnessed to others, has been, have been used by God uh, to be a witness that led to the salvation of another person. If they were asked the question, certainly this would have been true of me, what does it take for us to be saved? What did God have to do? What did He do? We might answer the question this way. Jesus Christ had to die on the cross for our sins. Only through that death on the cross can we be saved. And of course, that's totally true, isn't it? But is, is the full answer to the question really that? Is that the full answer? And I think no. The answer to the question, what did God have to do to save us in Jesus Christ, is well, what did God do in Jesus Christ? Now, we're fresh from several weeks of focusing on part of what God did in Jesus Christ. What God the Father did was send His Son, and in the power of the Spirit, the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God, was conceived in the Virgin Mary by God the Holy Spirit, and he was born, and he was laid in a manger, and we've celebrated that. That also is part of the answer to the question. What did God do to save us? He came to this earth. And when he came to this earth, because it, it strikes me that, that it would be a reasonable question to ask. Why didn't God just come down here and go to the cross and die on the cross? Because we can't be saved without the cross, and we know that. If he'd just been born in Bethlehem, we wouldn't be saved. If he'd just been a boy, we wouldn't be saved. If he'd just been a carpenter, we wouldn't be saved. If he'd just lived a sinless life, we wouldn't be saved. If he'd just preached the Sermon on the Mount, we wouldn't be saved. If he had just caused the blind to see and the lame to walk, and we wouldn't be saved. He had to die on the cross. The cross is central. The cross is crucial. But it's not the only thing that was essential. In order for the cross to be saving, to have saving power, everything else had to happen too. He had to be born. He had to be raised. He had to grow up. He had to spend many years as a worker. How do we know that? Because that's what he did. God's not twiddling his thumbs. Everything that happens in Jesus' life is saving work. How so? Well, for one thing, the Bible tells us that unless God became man, unless he truly became a human being, he could not be our advocate to the Father. In Hebrews, it says that our Lord suffered and was tempted at all points just as we are. And because of that, he is qualified and fit to be our advocate with the Father. And that's just one piece of a bigger work that God does in Jesus that is part of what it means for him to be our Savior. He's the mediator between us and God. He's the bridge between us and God. And that remains the case. That it never becomes the case that we don't need Him as our mediator. But He is the mediator. And in order for Him to be that, He really had to become a human being. But the church has also understood across the years that when God comes to this earth in Jesus Christ, and I've said this before since I've been here, you're going to say, ah, this guy repeats the same things. Well, the truth is I only know seven or eight things, and I just say them over and over and try to fool people into listening to them. And here's one of them that I say over and over again, at least for the last 15 years or so. When God came to this earth in Jesus Christ and took on 
humanity and human flesh, we learn, listen now, that the scope of God's saving work, that which He is rescuing and redeeming and will have a part in the new world that is to come, includes all dimensions of what He created in the beginning. Jesus is not only the Savior of the invisible part of a human being. He is the Savior of the invisible part of the human being. You know, we think of our souls or our spirits. He is the the Savior of that, but not just that. And that's why the Apostle Paul got his back up and had to write a letter to the church at Corinth with all their other problems. They also had deep theological problems. And one of them was, some were saying that the resurrection had already happened and there was no resurrection to come. The resurrection of our bodies. And let me tell you, ever since I had my first lower back spasm at a cotton mill in South Carolina, I have needed and wanted and I am totally ready right now for my new body. And I'm so glad I'm promised one. I'm not promised a future floating around somewhere with no body. No, Paul said if there's no resurrection, bodily resurrection, then we above all people are the most to be pitied. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. All the happiness we have has to be gotten in this world. It's not so. He came to save our bodies. And He came to save the world. The Bible says in Romans that the whole creation is longing for the, re- the revealing of the sons of God, because that means that the whole creation will be saved. Now listen, He also came to save every stage of human life, from infancy to boyhood to growing up through puberty and becoming an adult and working. That's why Jesus was doing these things. He's redeeming these dimensions of life. God's concerned with all of it. And so Jesus had to be born. He had to be conceived in the womb of Mary. He had to be a boy. Then we also learn that when God does this, when He comes to this earth in Jesus Christ, nothing is haphazard. Nothing is just willy-nilly. Everything is planned. It happens perfectly according to the preordained plan of God. Over and over in these passages, we learn that this happened because it was to fulfill what a prophet had said a hundred years ago, a thousand years ago, and more. Everything happens the way it did because it had to happen that way, because it happened that way because it was fit for the saving work he's doing. And so we learn that Mary wasn't just anyone. She was righteous and hungering for God, and she was found pleasing to God. We always take this word righteous and we turn it into perfection. And that, that you know, clashes with one of our favorite things to say, nobody's perfect. That's the most boring thing I've ever heard. It's, we all know nobody's perfect. She, her righteousness was not that she never made a mistake, that she never sinned. But it was a comment about her and her spiritual state. And her spiritual state was a good one. She loved God. She loved the people of God. She, she loved the Word of God. And she was chosen by God, not because she earned or deserved it, but because she was a person who'd been blessed by God. She was a highly favored one by God. And so, when we turn to this passage today, the boyhood of Jesus, we have things to learn about God's saving work for us by what we learn from this passage about this incredible event that happened in Jesus' boyhood. Now, the first thing I want us to notice is this, is that in this passage, we learn something about the family that God put Jesus in. And we're learning that God is affirming something about that family. The family of Jesus in this passage, we're told that they and the extended family clan, their relatives, made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem from Nazareth in order to celebrate in one of the great feasts that occurred in Jerusalem. Every faithful and committed Jew knew that this was an appropriate and right thing to do, that God is pleased with those 
who come to Mount Zion, to Jerusalem, and who celebrate these feasts that had been established uh, in, the, in the revelation of God in the Old Testament from many, many centuries earlier. And we read about that in the early books of the Old Testament. But not everyone went. Not every Jew went to Jerusalem. Many families didn't go at all. Some families who didn't want to be completely unrepresented, they would just send the man, the head of the family, and he would go to Jerusalem and participate in the feast. But some families would take their whole family and their extended family. And this was a sign of great commitment. This was a sign of great sacrifice. It was very expensive. It took many days. They couldn't earn money during those days. And we know that Jesus' family was not wealthy. They were poor. They were not destitute, but they were not wealthy. And it displays a great, a great commitment to God and to the things of God. And so they make their way to Jerusalem. And when they were there, and let and celebrated after they left we learned that Jesus had gotten separated from them this is not an instance of parental neglect at all he's 12 years old and it really makes perfect sense that this is the kind of thing that could have happened he was with a large group of people he probably was wanting to be independent to some extent from his family we're not told that but it wasn't unusual and it it, it's not a sign of neglect on the part of the parents. But in any case, he was separated from them. And then, of course, they were horrified and afraid for him. And they weighed their way back to Jerusalem, and they found him in the temple teaching, and they were amazed. And the first reaction is one that I think all of us can relate to and understand. First of all, that it's the mother who approaches Jesus, and the mother who reprimands Jesus. It's that kind of situation where your first thing you say is, how could you do this? And the next thing you're thinking is, hugging the, per hugging the child, I'm so glad that you're okay. And so she says, how could you do this to us? That's, that's vital for us to understand. She's speaking for herself and his father. And then she says specifically, how to him, I and your father have been so upset about how could they not be? And then Jesus says, why were you concerned? Why were you even looking for me? Why were you looking for me? It's fascinating. And he says, don't you realize that I must be in my father's house. I may have mentioned this before in an earlier sermon, but many of the beautiful icons that are made in Eastern Christianity that depict the family of Jesus will depict Jesus with brothers, with, with Mary, kind of enjoying one another and relating to each other in a very natural way. And then it will have Joseph off to the side, kind of bent over by himself, looking down. Joseph left out. Now, it's not true that Joseph has been left out. Joseph is crucial to the whole story. Joseph even received dreams after Jesus was born that saved his, saved his life and the life of the family. But it is the case that, Jesus, that Joseph is in a very, very awkward position. His wife became pregnant uh, before they were married and became pregnant not by him. Think about that. And now he's being put to the side again because Mary brings up the upset of his father. And Jesus said, I was with my father. Joseph was not, is not, and can never be his father the way the heavenly father is his father. And then he said this, I had to be, he didn't just say I had to be with my father. He didn't say I just had to be with my father. That's crucial. He said, I had to be in my father's house. Now, I'm sure I've mentioned the title of this book before, 
and I'm going to mention it again. And, you know, it's about millennials, and it, you know, I'm, I'm just not going to get into this millennial bashing. I love the millennials. We need to help the millennials because they're, they're already starting to run the world, and pretty soon they are going to run everything. They won't have much to complain about because they'll be in control of everything. And so all my students now at Beeson just about are millennials. My children are millennials. And so this is a book about millennials. But here's what it says, and I don't even know if it's true, but certainly what the title says can be true of a person regardless of what generation they belong to. Here's what it says. They love Jesus, but they hate the church. They love Jesus, but they hate the church. I'm sympathetic. I'm sympathetic. I get paid to go to church. I've been in the church. There was, a, there was like a three and a half, four year period when I went to dance with the devil and I became an intravenous drug user and I was in jail for a little, little time. I might be making up some of this, but I'm not. Uh, I make up enough stuff that you never know quite which. But in any case, I've been in the church. I have a lot of experience with the church. And there's nothing bad you can tell me about the church that will surprise me. Because I've been in it. I'm sympathetic. They love Jesus. They hate the church. You go to church and you encounter a lot of things other than Jesus. <laughs> other people. <laughs> and we're all, we're all broken. We hurt each other. That's why Jesus said in the Lord's Prayer... Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those. Because he knew that was going to be going on. Um, people say, you know, I love Jesus and I'm a Christian, but I don't want anything to do with the, you, you fill in the blank, the what church, the institutional church. I don't have uh, organized religion. I don't have anything to do with that. And in fact, uh, many will point to Jesus himself. They will use the authority of Jesus and his own words and actions from the New Testament to justify this kind of, not just distinction between Jesus and the church, but an antagonism between Jesus and the church. And many will say that, that the reason that I either don't involve myself in, or I keep myself very loosely attached. You know, I don't sit all the way down. I keep myself very loosely attached to organized religion in the church. It's for the sake of my relationship with Jesus. The, the, the involvement in the church hurts my relationship to Jesus. And they'll use Jesus' own words and his actions. Jesus, of course, would go into this same temple that he called my father's house. And he would turn over the money changers' tables. It's called the cleansing of the temple. And he would drive people out of, of the temple with a whip. You know, that's in the Bible. Jesus pointed to the temple one time. And he said, not, there's not one stone upon another in that temple that's not going to be thrown down. And he said to the woman, he criticized the leaders of the gathered people of God, the institutional people of God, the organized religion in Jerusalem. He said he criticized the Sadducees. These were high ups in the church who loved to wear fancy clothes and they loved to hobnob with the powerful. They loved to get, it, get in right with the powers that be in Rome and they were viewed, as, viewed in many ways as betrayers uh, and traitors to their own people. And Jesus said they were snakes and vipers. He criticized the Pharisees. These were those who were the, the really committed Jews and committed to the law and teachers of the law, and they were committed to obedient life. But Jesus said of them, you lay burdens on other people that you won't take yourself. You won't stoop down to follow all of these instructions that you give to other people. He was very, very critical. To the woman at the well, he said to her, she was a Samaritan and they worshipped on Mount Gerizim. And she was shocked to see that this Jew, this male Jew, would even speak to her because, number one, she was a woman, and number two, she was a Samaritan. And there was this hostility between the Samaritans and the Jews because the Samaritans were half-breeds. 
And so it was an extraordinary situation. And Jesus said to her, well, she said to him to test him. She said, well, we worship on Mount Gerizim, whereas you Jews worship in Jerusalem. And Jesus said, a time is coming when neither on Mount Gerizim or in Jerusalem will you worship. Listen now, because this is where the big mistake is made. Those who worship in the age to come, they must worship in spirit and in truth. This is the crucial point. This is the crucial point. These are the places where early in the church, within the first two centuries of the church, there grew up these groups that we now view as heretics, people who, who distorted the faith, Gnostics. And they latched on to passages like that. Whoever's going to worship, going to worship in spirit and truth. And they used that to disparage the physical creation and the physical body. They said all that matters are the spiritual things. And spiritual meant not material, not physical. And brothers and sisters, that's not true in the Bible. And I'll prove it in a minute, but, or I think I will. I am divine. And so we'll see if I can pull it off. And they said, he said, you're spirit and truth you're going to worship. So, so yeah, I, I worship Jesus. I love Jesus. I love him in my heart. And I worship him wherever I am. I don't have to go to church to worship him. And uh, I can worship him in my car with my uh, Christian music on. And that's true. And I can worship him when I'm in my devotional time, my quiet time. I can worship him in a tree stand. I can worship him on my way to the football game. I can worship I don't need the church. The church is something that I can use if it helps me with my relationship with Jesus, you see. My spiritual, non-material, invisible. And there's a lot of different passages in the Bible they can get to try to make that work. And that's what they said. But here's what Jesus went on to say. He went on to say this. Listen, where two or three are gathered, there am I in the midst. There am I in the midst. Huh, I thought it was just me and Jesus. Oh, now it's two or three gathered. What else did he say? He said, after Peter answered Jesus' question at Caesarea Philippi, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, on this rock, the rock of that confession, that I'm the Christ, which means the Jewish Messiah, by the way, I'm going to build my church. I'm going to build my church. And some people there, they say, oh, but that doesn't mean the organized church. That doesn't mean the, the, the institutional church. That means the, the invisible universal church the, the sum of all individual believers who belong to the Father. And that's not exactly wrong. But the problem is, when we look to the, the book of Acts and the epistles of the, of the Apostle Paul, we learn that, no, that's not the gathering of the two or three in his name. The pattern of the gathering of God's people is in the age of the church that we live in, is very much like what we see in the Old Testament. He gathered an actual people together who came together, who worshipped together, who, who, whose lives were deeply involved with each other, and it was to be in a particular place in Israel, and it would center around especially the temple. And over the years, as you had the dispersions of the Jews, the synagogue grew up so that there were local places of worship where Jews worshipped when they were not in Jerusalem. And the temple achieved a, retained a special and high place, and that's why they would make pilgrimages there. But they also had these synagogues that were out and about in many places where the Jews would worship, even places outside of Israel. And we look to the book of Acts, and what we see is God is gathering actual people in actual towns and actual places where there's an actual place where Christians actually gather and worship like we're doing right now. And they entered into covenant relationships with each other where they made promises to each other. And it was, it was a kind of bond where it wasn't just, well, today I feel like going. It was a kind of thing that you could be kicked out of, which is, shows that there was membership in the churches. Have you read 1 Corinthians chapter 5? 
There a man is kicked out of the church. I don't know if you've read it. He was living with his father's wife. Must have been his stepmother, I suppose. And he was, they had not kicked him out at the church. And Paul said, you've got to kick him out. Well, is this legalism? I thought we worshiped the blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jesus of Hollywood fame who just says everybody's okay and that's what grace is. Grace is just treating his sin like it's nothing. That's what a lot of people do now. They, they, must, they substitute tolerance for sin where it ought to be repentance and forgiveness. You see the difference? Repentance means you say, what I did was wrong. And I commit, I, first of all, I confess that that's the case, and then I commit myself not to do that thing. And then we find forgiveness for the bad thing we did. But now, we, that's the grace of God. But now we don't talk about grace. We talk about tolerance. So whatever anybody does, we don't mention it. We act like it's nothing. We say, well, we're just going to be gracious about it. You don't find that in the Bible. Paul said he has to be kicked out of the church. And the reason he has to be kicked out of the church is because he's, he's not confessing himself as a sinner. And see, Jesus, Jesus is no good to people who aren't sinners. Do you understand that? He's saying he's not admitting that what he is doing is a sin. Yeah, here's what Jesus knows. He died on the cross for that sin. He had to suffer and die because his behavior is heinous and awful and dirty and it is an abomination before God. And Jesus had to die for it. And there at first current, they're patting themselves on the back on how gracious they are. Whereas Jesus had to suffer because of what he did. And the reason Jesus suffered for what that man did and all the sins we've committed or will commit is because He loves us and He knows that these sins hurt us. You see, it's not a matter of putting the man down. It's a matter of the man needing to see that what he's doing is destructive to him. And so he had to be kicked out. But the first order of business was not that he had to be kicked out for that. He had to be kicked out of the church because otherwise the credibility of the gospel would be lost. There proclamation of Jesus Christ would have no credibility when Jesus had some very hard things to say about adultery and about fornication and sexual immorality. And so he had to be kicked out even if things wouldn't go well with him after he was kicked out. A lot of people say, eh, I don't say anything, don't do anything. Because if we, you know, if, we, if, we, if, if we ostracize, then we don't have any influence over them. Again, these people aren't reading the Bible, but that's the way they think. But there in Corinth, he has to go even if things go bad for him. We don't decide whether he's going to go based on how things might go if we show him the door. But then they said this wild thing. I could never come up with something like this. That's why I've got the Bible. It says, we've got to turn him over to Satan so that he might be saved. It's like, we're going to let Satan whoop up on him a while, hoping he'll come to his senses, repent of his sins, and turn back. But the point I want to make about this is this. People say, I don't know anything about the institutional church. But the church that Paul writes to in Corinth, their commitment to each other in that place with that congregation was such that you could be kicked out of it. So unless I'm attached to a people of God, a visible, concrete, identifiable people of God in time and space in such a way that I can be denied membership, then I'm not a member of the church in the way it's envisioned in the New Testament. How does it happen that there can be a generation that grows up that believes that they can have Jesus without the church he died for. It's a pattern that happens in the church. We see it in church history. When something good goes bad, then often what happens is that thing that went bad is rejected altogether. I've said this before. You know, God invented sex. Are you aware of that? That was his idea. Male, female, and sex. That was his idea. He came up with it. Young people often don't realize that. You know, they can't, they think their parents don't understand anything and they don't reflect on the fact that their very existence, you know, is, is some pretty good evidence that somebody else thought of it before they did. 
right? And yet, when you turn to the Bible, sex is certainly treated as one of the most dangerous things that ever happens. It's, it, sex is viewed as something that has created great problems and, and great difficulties in the Bible. A lot of bad ink spilled on sex in the Bible. And in the Roman Catholic Church, they end up deciding, you know, the people that really want to be serious about Jesus, they'll just decide never to have sex again, right? To take a vow of chastity. This is the, this is the baby out with the bathwater misunderstanding. You see, in the fall, in our rebellion against God, in our fall into sin, all the good things God made us for have been broken and distorted and put to bad use. Listen now. But what salvation brings is not lopping all those things off so that only thing is left is this non-material, non-physical, spiritual thing I have with God. What salvation means is that God comes to redeem and restore and bring back to the right place all the good things He made. Gluttony's bad too. We don't preach on that much in Alabama. You know, this is, this is barbecue here. We, we talk about that. We'll think about sin somebody's committing somewhere else in the world and the country, and, and we'll treat that as the big awful thing. But, and so then what, again, Roman Catholics, oh, we're going to fast like crazy. I'm not against fasting. But we're made to eat. Food was also God's idea. The issue is not to eliminate that which is made by God is good but to engage and enjoy and put to right use those good things. And the, the gathering and organizing and institutionalizing of the people of God is clearly one of those things. They say, well, what about all this nasty stuff that Jesus said and did related to the gathered people of God? Follow me now. Some people say there are two things you should never talk about if you want to have a good relationship with people. What are they? Politics and religion. Why? Because people are passionate and therefore capable of being very angry and emotional about the things that matter most to them. Where are we going to see Jesus displaying righteous anger not on something he doesn't care about, but on, about something he does care about. You see, when he was 12 years old and he stayed in the temple, he was in his father's house. What was true about his father's house? A whole bunch of awful things were true, but it didn't change the fact. That's his father's house. That's the people of God. That's the family of God. He's the great physician. The healthy don't need him. They're not healthy. Neither are we. We'll never be what we're meant to be until we see him face to face. But in the meantime, in the meantime, don't make any mistake about it. Our Lord, when we come to him, it has nothing to do with... Here's, here's another, let me back up. Here's another way that, that at least in my own Baptist tradition, the way we did the, ba the baby out with the bathwater on the church. Certain uh, streams in the history of Christianity have really emphasized the church far more than some other streams. And sometimes in these streams, especially in very serious uh, Roman Catholic areas, uh, you'll have people who are very attached to the church. Uh, they're, they're very committed in certain ways. But then you would discover that they really don't know what's in their Bibles. And they don't know that much about Jesus. And, and so it's like the church, from the perspective of other streams where the Bible is emphasized and Jesus is put right in the center where he belongs, where the Bible puts him, uh, you discover <clears throat> that you begin to say, well, wait a minute. So, you know, go back to sex. Sex is an enemy of Jesus, so I just won't have anything to do with it. Oh, oh, these people have, they, they've marginalized Jesus. They've forgotten about the Bible. 
and all they care about is the church. You know, these are the kind of people, they th- and you, you'll find out some of them do think, and this is not just true of Catholics, it can be anybody, it can be a Baptist, Presbyterian, a non-denominational, whatever it is, there are people who can think that, you know, if I go to church, I'm going to be saved. And as a pastor of many years, there, I, 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 confront, I find people that they do think that. And of course, that's a lie. That's a lie. But the issue here is not that we can that we're saved by the church. The issue here is that we see in Scripture very clearly that Jesus saves us for the church. He puts us in the church. That's his plan for us. Um, I was so happy that that somehow uh, the songs we're singing together are fit for me to then interpret them, not just the Bible. Here's what we sang together. Do you sing? What do we sing? You know, it is a bonding experience. I don't always sing out loud, but we should at least move our lips. Here's what some of us sang and some of us moved our lips to and others ignored today. We sang this. I'm chosen, not forsaken. I am who you say I am. And then this. In my Father's house, there's a place for me. There's a lot I like about this. All these things are true, for one thing. But you know, when Jesus said this thing about being chosen to the disciples, he did not say, well, when we read in, in the New Testament, when Jesus says to his followers, I chose you, you did not choose me. You, you did not choose me. Because English is, of course, English is the greatest language ever, right? It's the lingua franca, and the French are not happy. It's, it's the language of commerce. People all over the world want to learn English, right? You're aware of that? We go to Thailand, and they want, us, they want us, first of all, because we speak English, and we're Americans, and they want American English now because they watch our movies. They used to want British English. And I've told you, I teach them Southern English. When I was a missionary there, I taught them to say y'all, fixing to, crack the window, carry me to the store, all that kind of stuff. And, and they love that. But English has a weakness, and it's that we do not distinguish between the singular you and plural you, do we? You could be singular or, pure or plural. That's why Southern English is, a, is an improvement of the English language because we added not only y'all, but all y'all. <laughs> now, that enriches a language. Now, Many languages of the world, including New Testament Greek, they have both you and y'all. German has both you and y'all. French has both you and... They're different words, you see. And so when I began to learn New Testament Greek, my first thought was, you know, it's like when you're learning algebra. Am I ever going to use this? And for most people, the answer is no. <laughs> but then I noticed the singular you. When Jesus said, I chose you. You didn't choose me. It doesn't say you. It says y'all. It says y'all. So what we said was right. I am chosen, not forsaken. But here's what's also true. We could have sung this, and it would be true. And this is a message that I think, I don't want to pit these against each other. The individual application of salvation is precious and wonderful. So I'm not saying anything bad about that. I'm just saying that we've grown up in a time and a place where we have been encouraged to always think about me, me and God, me and Jesus. I'm loved. I'm this. I'm that. And that's why our music reflects it. And so the way we learn that there might be other things we're missing, we have to start looking at some older hymns, some older traditions and say, oh, wait a minute, that... Now the church is at the, at the center and so forth. Is, is that biblical? This is what we could have sung. It would also be true. We are chosen, not forsaken. We are chosen, not forsaken. Why did he save us? Why did he save us? I've said it several times. I'll say it many other times. We were saved for a lot of things. 
And here's one of the things we were saved for. It's not an option. It's not like a cafeteria. Okay, I've saved you. Go over there to the cafeteria of things I've purchased for you with my blood and pick the ones you like. He saved us for what we need and what we were made for, and He knows that because He's God. All right? Here's something He saved every person who's been saved for. He saved us for each other. He saved us to be part of the family of God to love each other and be loved by each other. And now listen, to forgive each other and ask for forgiveness. See, he knows we're going to sin against each other. What do we do when we sin against each other? We, we, everybody's on trial, and as soon as the person's not bringing us happiness, we say goodbye to them. That's why marriages can't last. That's why churches have great trouble. Because we're, we're just living in a time where our commitment to our own immediate personal happiness so dominates our thinking, this is, the, this is the trick of the devil, that we end up making it impossible to have and experience the deepest levels of joy. And those all come when we are so committed to other people because we've been saved by Jesus Christ that this whole dimension of love that we were made for becomes our own. But we make it not happen because... We're not willing. We, don't, we, don't, we do not believe that this is the case because we haven't experienced it. They love Jesus, but they hate the church. Why? They had a bad experience in the church. Well, not going to do that anymore. We who know better need to quit giving them that excuse. We need to quit comforting them when they say that. We need to start saying, well, I understand that. And if you've had a bad experience in the church... You say, I've experienced the same thing. But look at the Scriptures. Look at the Scriptures. Do you believe in the authority of the Bible? If you don't, then you made up your own God. Here's how you know if you believe in the authority of the Bible. When it says something you don't like or disagree with, you submit anyway. And if you don't do that, you're just making an idol for yourself. You love to start sentences with, I can't worship a God who... And then all we learn about is your preferences. We don't learn anything about the real God. I'm so you know, I backed into becoming a serial transition pastor or interim pastor. I, backed, I didn't mean to do it. It happened because I just wanted to preach. But it started in 1994. I'd been a pastor and I became a professor, and I, I was in a situation I couldn't be a full-time permanent pastor. I couldn't do that. But I ended up doing what I'm doing, these interims transitional pastors. And over the years, starting in 1994, I'm so glad that the Lord led me into it. Because over the years, God has given me the very special and wonderful opportunity to see something of what I think he sees. How precious are the people of God. How much the devil hates the church. He, he definitely wants to separate you from the church and put you out there with just you and Jesus. But there's no Jesus who didn't die for the church. There's no Jesus who didn't say, you're members of my body and I'm your head. You're in mutual interdependence upon each other. There's no, there's no place like that. I'm so glad that uh, your transitional pastor who came last week came, and I've already gotten some good feedback about that. That is so wonderful. I want you to know that I'm going to be praying very much and very often that a bond of trust will grow up between you and him. And I'm so glad you're bringing someone who's made it his particular focus and the investment of his life to shepherd congregations through these transitional times. I'm so glad that you're doing that. Because investment in each other, in the church, in a covenant way, where you're committed to each other, is the will of God. So I want to know what the will of God is, do you? It's very clear. All investment you put in each other in this place is the will of God. Not to be tested by whether you like it. You see, what if God's relationship to us was like that? Whether He likes it. The, com the, the depth of love and meaning that you gain from the Jesus who said, I'm going to build my church 
will be proportional to the commitment you bring to that which He loves. And listen, that which He loves, it's not just you. It's the body of Christ He made you to have a place in. I have a place in my Father's house. Yeah, that's right. And is it just you and the Father rattling around in there? No, it's the rest of the family. Here's what the devil wants you to do. He wants you to treat the church like a spiritual product or service that you access according to whether you think you like it. But here's how Jesus relates to the church. He died to build the church. He died to put us in there as a unique and special member of the body of Christ who will love and serve others in unique ways because we're all unique. And he also, listen, he designed you so that you cannot fulfill your purpose for being on this earth by yourself. You need other people that will serve you and love you in ways that only they can. And that's in the mystery and the beauty of God's design of the body of Christ. God grant that in these coming weeks and months, as I move, I make way for this usurper of a transitional pastor, I'm kidding, <laughs> that, that you will recognize that this is so. And I, I think I may have mentioned before you that, that um, Helen Mirren, the British actress, was asked, you know, do, would you rather perform in front of a, a British audience or an American audience? And she said, she's British, and she said, oh, I'd rather, rather perform in front of an American audience. She said, why? She said, because Brits, here's the way they watch a show. They sit back and say, what you got? She said, an American audience sits forward and says, what you got? That's the way you should, you should be the Americans you are. And you're, you've burned a bridge behind you, the same way God is committed to you and will not forsake you. You're not going to forsake Him by forsaking His people, the people He's gathered you together with. God grant that that will happen in the days and weeks to come. I'm going to pray in just a moment, and then we'll open the altar for anyone who would come and and all of us, whether we come forward or not, let this be a time in which we say, yes, Lord Jesus, I recognize you died for the church, you died for me, you put me in the church you died for, and I am committed to the church because I'm committed to you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we stand in awe of your salvation. But today especially,